Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Wasn't that exciting? Yeah. I'm going to ask you to go with me, hopefully briefly here, to Acts chapter 2, and uh, we'll look at verses 21 through 41, and today is, I don't know if you knew this, today's Pentecost Sunday, so we're celebrating the, uh, the birth of the church, and what a better way, what better way is there to do that than to uh, watch, um, witness baptism, hey amen, that's exciting, so we're going to we're going to take a look at Peter's sermon from uh, Pentecost. I thought it would be appropriate considering it's Pentecost Sunday and we uh, just witnessed baptism. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing cannot be as moderately important. And I think that's really important today to consider that a lot of people take Christianity as moderately important, like it's a little bit important, like we ought to have a little bit of religion in our lives, but this isn't the New Testament form of Christianity, or if you want to, if you want to describe it more relationally, of following Christ, being his disciple is not, is not a half-hearted thing, it's not something we enter into uh, with part of ourselves, it's something that we plunge in with both feet. Yeah, we go completely under, you know what I mean, <laughs> when it comes to following Jesus. And so uh, we don't want to be uh, people who take this moderately important. And so here we find, as in many places, how radical Christ is. He calls for radical commitment. And those he left behind as witnesses when he ascended to the Father, uh, they likewise called for radical commitment to Jesus. And so let's take a look at our passage here. We're in Acts chapter 2. And let's start at verse 21. This is a, a long passage, and it'd be wonderful to, to look at all of it. But I'm going to start in the middle of Joel's prophecy, not more towards the end. And then we'll read a little bit about what takes place following that. And, uh, and everyone, it says in verse 21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Um, if you pause here for just a moment and consider this, uh, Peter's not here trying to win friends and influence people. He's trying to connect with the heart of sin that dwells within individuals and for them to recognize that we owe our allegiance to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with the joy of your presence. Fellow Israelites, Peter again is talking, I can tell you 
confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. He's describing the events that are taking place on this particular Pentecost. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I want to ask you to think about how long we would have to be here if 3,000 people were getting baptized. I'd have to abbreviate my comments quite a bit uh, for us to get it in in one day. But what an awesome moment it is. And what an awesome moment it is when anyone chooses to follow the Lord in baptism and says, with their life, I'm voting for Jesus. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to live for him. I'm not going to live the way that uh, much of the culture does, but I'm going to run counterculture, and I'm going to follow Jesus and give my life to a purpose that's bigger than myself. Now, I don't have time this morning to talk about everything in these verses, and so I want to focus on what's most important. The background of this Pentecost sermon is that uh, that Israel was celebrating a pilgrim festival, and they had three of those throughout the year where uh, where Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire and even beyond the borders of the Roman Empire would come to Jerusalem, and they would celebrate Harvest Festival and give of their first fruits and honor God. And so what this meant was an influx of people, an influx of people packing into Jerusalem. Jesus had told his followers that they're to wait at Jerusalem until the the promise of the Father came. And the promise of the Father did come. And and as they are praying, the Spirit began to move and the sound of a mighty rushing wind filled the room. And these these little flames came and rested on each one of them. And then it first came and made a central flame and then it parted and rested on each one, symbolizing that they now, each person was now the tabernacle of God. See, this is something we can't uh, go into in depth today, but I want you to know that when you follow Christ, you become the dwelling place of God. His Spirit lives in you. That's exciting, even if we can't understand it. It's, it's uh, a lot of times we, we fail to understand all the implications of that. But the church, the church waited, and then the Spirit fell, and a noise began to burst forth. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we, and we believe that God still does that. Okay, and so a crowd gathered. What's this noise that's happening? And they gathered around, and some of them mocked and said, these guys are drunk. Uh, We can't understand exactly what they're saying. Because when the Spirit 
fell on them, they began to speak in other tongues. And the way that, that many heard them, they heard them in their own languages. And so they're wondering what exactly is going on here. Peter stands up and says, these guys aren't drunk. No, the Spirit has fallen. This is what was promised in the prophet Joel. And then he, uh, he goes through that quote about the Spirit being uh, given upon all people and your sons and daughters prophesying. And, and he's saying now this promise, and what he's talking about here is the promise of the Holy Spirit, first in dwelling and then in power coming upon each of us. Do you know God wants to dwell in us? It's his plan as we're tabernacles of God. So he quotes from Joel, and Peter answers, and then he begins to preach the, the gospel message. And at the end of that section on Joel, it's the first verse we read, verse 21, if you have your Bibles open, it says, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We need deliverance. We need to be saved from our sins. We need to be saved from the punishment that we rightly deserve because of our sins. Our world, our world has gone crazy. And a lot of times we want to throw blame on the institutions of the world. And where the real blame falls is on the heart of every person. Okay? This is not the pastor saying, you guys are all sinners. This is me recognizing, and I hope you're recognizing our human condition, is that we stand as sinful before God and need forgiveness. That's true. It's important. And so we have a problem, and, and God rightfully could pour out his wrath upon us, but he's given us a way where that doesn't have to happen. He's given us Jesus, his son. And so it says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This particular word, call upon, probably means to, to cry out to or to pray to. Sometimes you'll find in um, Roman literature, you'll find that people made a formal request of Caesar. And this term is used. This is when we call upon the Lord and say, save us. Now, in uh, the Roman days, many thought, and Rome loved this, they wanted to be the emperor wanted to be both Lord and God for the people, as if the Roman Empire were the, were the mother distributing all the gifts to her children. And so a lot of people put their faith in the, in the empire. And what these Christians are saying, these early Christians are saying, we can't get the answers that we need from our governments. The world doesn't have the answer to what we really need. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. And so call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Don't, don't look to other solutions for your spiritual need. We need Jesus. Verse 22 through 24, Peter goes on to say, fellow Israelites. So he's, he's calling all of these people in. Some of them are, are Jewish people that have been dispersed to far-reaching places, and they, they fear God, but they don't all speak Hebrew. And so now... Peter's addressing them, and he says to them, uh, this Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you, uh, credited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Keep that in mind, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and knowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So I'd like you to notice here uh, some things that this, these verses are saying. First, it says to us that Jesus did miracles in front of people. 
Okay, remember I said keep a phrase in mind that you yourselves know he did signs and wonders, and this you yourselves know. The testimony about Jesus had gone far and wide. People had seen what he'd done. Even those who rejected him, many of them saw what he did, but they didn't want to put their faith in him. They didn't want to trust him. So he did miracles that people witnessed, and some people wrote him off as some mystic prophet, uh, but definitely not the Messiah because he has the wrong kind of profile. He has the wrong kind of look. He comes from the wrong kind of place. His resume isn't as impressive as they hoped it would be. And uh, so they didn't want to put their faith in him. But Jesus did miracles in front of people. And then the second thing it tells us about Jesus here is that he was executed on a cross by sinful people, but this was God's plan. Okay, I know sometimes we like to be, and we're kind of a dialectic kind of society where we think in terms of either or, like it's either man doing it or it's God doing it. But here we have an understanding that sinful people did it, but it was God's plan. Are you with me? This was God's plan. God in his foreknowledge knew what was going to happen to Jesus, and he allowed it to happen, and he planned for it to happen because it was going to be the means by which we're saved. So it tells us he was executed on the cross. And not just a meaningless execution, but a meaningful death for you and me. And then the third thing it tells us is that Jesus was raised from the the dead. It says uh, he was delivered from the agony of death, it says in the NIV, because death uh, could not keep its hold on him. And the actual word there for hold is power. It's dunamis. We get our word dynamite from it. And what this suggests is that death had no power to keep him. I don't know how that resonates with you, but when I saw it like that, that made me excited. Death could not keep him because it had no power to hold him. See, and the great thing about that is that's true for everyone who's a follower of Jesus too, is death cannot ultimately hold you. In the end, we will be raised with him because we're trusting in him. So he mentions some things here about the accreditation of Jesus, and I think it's important that we ask these things. Some people do, and some people did through the scriptures, and I don't think God ever got mad at people for asking good questions, sincere questions about Jesus. Is he the real deal? And so in this passage, it tells us in three different ways that Jesus was accredited to us, or in other words, he was proven to us as the Messiah. The first was with his miracles, but they're not just like any miracle worker. These miracles were signs that testified according to the Old Testament of what the Messiah was going to look like. Verse 22, he's accredited to you by miracles. Verse 27, he's accredited to you by prophecy, that there are these prophetic uh, verses that go back into the Old Testament that point forward to who Jesus is. And that's really, really important. It's, uh, I would suggest it's of supreme importance. In fact, in the book of Peter, Peter says, we've seen this with our own eyes, but we even have a more sure word than that. It's the word of prophecy. In other words, the Bible is more significant even than our own experience in terms of these things. We saw it, but more importantly, the Bible says it was going to happen this way. So the prophecy pointed to it. And then the third thing is he's accredited to you by testimony. In verse 32, Peter says, and we saw it. We saw it with our eyes. We, we saw that he was raised from the dead. We saw the same Jesus who went to the cross and was declared dead by Roman soldiers who are really good at telling when people were dead. 
we saw that he came to life. We were, Peter was like the, maybe the typical fisherman, like uh, the world has fallen to pieces. I'm going fishing. He's ready to get out of town and do something a little different. But uh, Jesus would not let their hope die because they'd put their confidence in him. Verse 36, I'm moving quickly ahead here. It says, uh, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This tells us the Father requires that we come uh, through Jesus. Lord and Messiah are significant terms, and I wish we could take some time to unpack those, but let's just do a quick uh, look back. When we talk about Messiah, there was somebody in Israel's history that was expected to come and to bring rescue for God's people. Okay? And if you go all the way back, even to Abraham, and even before Abraham to Eve, you hear the echoes that this blessing that's coming, this one that's coming, is not just going to bring blessing to Israel, but to all mankind. Are you with me on that? Aren't you glad for that? Man, this, this whole beautiful thing could have been trapped within the confines of the borders of Israel, but it's come all the way to Alaska and beyond. Thank the Lord for that. It's for all of us. Let him be Messiah. Israel's hope is our hope, that there's a Messiah to save us. Lord is a significant term. This is something that people uh, would refer to a king, and so it has a it has a Gentile element to it in which the, you look to somebody who's like a supreme uh, power. And then there's a Jewish element to it because in the Old Testament, one of the names that was used for God is Lord. They didn't want to take Yahweh's name in vain. And so what they did is they, they put in the place of Yahweh, they put Adonai. Okay? And Adonai, when it's translated in the Greek Old Testament, is translated the same word that we have in the New Testament. For Lord, So what it is is an equation that Jesus is Yahweh. He is Lord. He is the Son of God, and that's significant. We're not just talking about a human figure. We're talking about somebody who is fully God and fully man. You say, how do you explain that? There's mystery to this, but God came in flesh, and he dwelt among us. And when we look to him and we call upon the name of Jesus, we're not just looking to a dead human figure. We're looking to the risen Lord of life. That's important for us today. So it says in verse 36, let all Israel be assured of this. In other words, Israel, take note. Everyone, listen up. You can be assured of this. You can bank on it that God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I'd like you to notice that there's a, an irony here. The irony is this, is that you rejected him, but this is the one God has chosen. You rejected him. Now, this is the one. That means that if you've been rejecting him, stop rejecting him and turn around and accept him. That's the call. So the one who was being rejected all along is the one that we have to call upon, we have to trust in, we have to turn to. Verse 37 and 38, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Okay, so I don't know how familiar you are with church, but man, I grew up in church, and sometimes the pastor had my number. Anybody else like that? Like, the Holy Spirit's been looking at my windows. (laughs) He knows what's going on, and my pastor has a direct line to the Holy Spirit. And so he's calling me out on my stuff. 
Anybody ever felt like that? And when the preaching came, the sweat started to pour. You're sweating bullets under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I've done that where, man, God's dealing with me on the inside. And I thought to myself, I could just make it to the door and see what's going on out there and get back to the real world and away from this as if that were the real world and this was some contrived thing. Then I'll be safe. Got to get out from under this conviction. So I, if you know that, you know what conviction's like. God dealing with you. That's what's happening here is that Peter's preaching, but the Holy Spirit is pushing the message to the heart for these individuals. They're, they're hearing it. They're, they're uh, cut to the heart. Their armor has been pierced. Whatever difficulty or obstacle they put up, God found a way through it, which he always does. And so they said... What shall we do? What shall we do to be saved? Verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and to all whom the Lord our God calls. The promise is the promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling with us and the Holy Spirit empowering us. And that's for for you, but they, he mentions some things here. This is the the first sermon that's recorded after the ascension of Christ, and one of the last things Jesus says. If you know um, the Gospel of Luke, you know that the writer of Luke is also the writer of the Book of Acts. Okay, so there's some continuity there, and it says in Luke chapter 24, then uh, he opened their mind. Then Jesus opened their minds, the disciples, so they could understand the scriptures, and he told them. This is what was written, the Messiah will suffer, and he'll rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. It's almost as if Luke's like, I'm going to pause here for a little bit, and then I'm going to start writing the book of Acts, and I'm going to pick up right where I left off, right? So he goes on to say, uh, you're witnesses of these things. And I'm going to send what my father has promised, but stay in the city till you have been clothed with power from on high. So notice in Luke, I don't know if you remember this, but it said the repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached. Now we just read, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. So this is Peter doing exactly what Jesus told him to do. Preach repentance and uh, forgiveness of sins. So it says here in uh, Acts uh, 2.38, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus and you'll receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You'll be for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to pause here and say to you, this isn't two calls to do two things. This is one call, to repent and be baptized. It's assumed that if you repent of your sins, that at some point following that, you're going to be baptized in water, okay? There are some occasions when that doesn't happen. It's not the water that saves us. Come on, are you with me? It's not the water that saves us. Water is the symbol, but it's a symbol of allegiance to Jesus and commitment to him. And I, I don't want to discourage anybody from being baptized. We ought to all be baptized if we're following Jesus. But it's not that that we look to. We're looking to him to save us. So this repentance and being baptized, all part of one call, but it has two promises. First, and you'll be forgiven of your sins. The word that's used here for forgiveness is the act of freeing from guilt. Now, I don't know how you feel about all of this, but 
sometimes we feel ashamed of ourselves. And this is really important to make a distinction because we're, we live in a therapeutic culture and we get really internalized and psychological. And we think that if we feel shame, that's the same as bearing guilt. And it's not. We can be, I think when I read Paul, especially in 2 Corinthians, where he talks about being the chief of sinners, I think he still felt ashamed of his past life. But the guilt of it was gone forensically. It was placed upon Jesus objectively, so he no longer bore that guilt. We may feel ashamed, but it's a specter. It's not the real deal. It's not the weight of sin. Come on, isn't that good? Because when we really come to terms with that, it doesn't so much matter how we feel. It matters who we're putting our confidence in. And if we're putting our confidence in Jesus, the guilt is taken care of. If you'll repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, you'll receive the forgiveness of sins. We don't have to bear our sins. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Sorry, it's not very professional to get choked up in the pulpit. But that's the the promise to us. It's the act of freeing from guilt, the cancellation of guilt, of sin. If God says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. You don't have to, maybe you don't want to forgive yourself or you feel like somebody else won't forgive you. The last word and the most important word spoken of you over you is what God says about you. And if you're forgiven, you're forgiven. So that's the first promise. There's a lot of other times that this same promise is made without the mention of baptism. But it always includes repentance. And it always is because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. We, we have to talk about repentance for a second. And I can see my conclusion. It's right there in front of me. Okay. Repentance means to change our minds. And therefore, to change our lives. Okay. So... Those people who once rejected Jesus, at some point, some of them came to accept Jesus. And what happened was a change of mind and a change of life. They said, God, you were right about my sins. You're right about who Jesus is. I was wrong. Repentance is, God, you're right, and I'm wrong. Okay, We have to come to terms with that. And, and specifically, it deals with repentance of sins. When we have been living in sin, we justify it. We're, you know, we are, remember I was t- saying a few weeks ago about how cows, they're like idiot savants who can get out of the fence. And we're idiot savants, I'm sorry, I'm not insulting anybody, but we're really, really good at finding justifications for our bad behavior. Really good at it. Okay, scratch that from the record. You're not idiot savants. We're just really good at it. <laughs> and what has to happen is that we got to quit justifying our bad behavior and say, God, you're right. I really have been guilty of this. I think, in, I think uh, Tasha Gregg and I were talking about a movie the other day where a guy gets baptized, and he goes into the, the river and gets baptized, and then he comes back out, and uh, his fellow thieves were with him, and said, I thought you knocked over that liquor store. He goes, or I thought you said you didn't knock over. I did. I did. He owns up to it for the first time. He stops making excuses for what he did because he really comes to term with who Jesus is. We have to stop justifying our bad behavior and making excuses and come to agree with what God says about us. That's what confession of sin is, really. 
is is uh, agreement with what God has said. So that's the the first promise: is that if you'll if you'll repent, you'll be forgiven. Aren't you glad for that? Second promise is that you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Man, that's good. The gift of the Holy Spirit. See, one has to precede the other because the Holy Spirit, who is holy, cannot dwell in unholy dwellings, and so the temple has to be cleansed. And the only way that can happen is through forgiveness, right? So the Holy Spirit can come and dwell in us because our sins have been washed away through Jesus. So now he can come live within us, but the first thing that has to happen is the cleansing, and then the Holy Spirit comes to dwell. And so this is a promise that not only will he dwell, but if we'll ask him to, he'll empower us to live the lives and ministry he's called us to live. Okay? Well, I think that God can use, use us in the supernatural today. I believe we heard a word from the Lord this morning already. And that's how the Holy Spirit moves in that way uh, as well. And in many other ways, it's possible that we as Christians could lay our hands on the sick and they'll be healed. It's possible that God can give us supernatural knowledge. If you're a parent, you need God's wisdom. And sometimes in supernatural ways, you need to know how to parent your kids. And So you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He'll come and dwell. So I'd like you to notice the broad scope of this promise here. We should all recognize today that God desires for uh, us to be baptized. But think about all of think about all that follows. This promise is for you. Okay, notice uh, what it says there. This promise is for you, um, and for your children, and for all who are far off, and for all whom the Lord will call. So the promise is for the first tears and. So we're not just sitting here today talking about yesterday's news and wasn't that wonderful what God did for them, but also for your children, the offspring of the first hearers. In other words, what you're hearing, you can take that and share that with the next generation and they can hear it. It's good news, isn't it? That God's not just blessing uh, that one generation and inviting them to forgiveness and receive the Holy Spirit. But then it says to people who are far off, who've not yet heard, those who are far off, this could be far off chronologically, but probably more likely it's talking about people who are far off ge- geographically. And what it means, um, if we're unpacking it, is that not just you who are Jewish, but also to your Gentile neighbors, this promise is for them. And I'm telling you, when they first heard this, this is groundbreaking. I mean, it's all it's been there in the Old Testament all along, but some people got so locked into God's going to bless me and me and me and me. And us, not them. No, this promise is for them too. And so if you can imagine somebody that you think may be the worst sinner that you know, the promise is for them. Okay, and then, to all who are far off as mi- and all whom the Lord will call. And what I think Peter does here, he expands the net, that this goes down through the ages to you and me. And if you've met Jesus, you've seen this promise fulfilled in your life. That's you. That's people later. That's people of every language and race and nation. God is inviting them. And then it says with uh, this and many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from the corrupt, this corrupt generation. And uh, I'd like you to note here, this is 
this is an important thing to understand is our world is is uh, on the path of destruction. And even if you think, well, it's kind of hopeful that maybe we'll have some kind of a, a revolution or a change, the question we need to ask is, will it be a change for the better? Secondly, how long it will, will it last? Will it be in God's direction? And what if all that happens and then our sun burns out? Which is what's going to happen in time if God doesn't intervene. So... <laughs> It's pretty bleak to be on the other side. We need a savior and we need one bad. So with many other words, he warned them. And those who accepted the message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to the number. He warns them, flee from the corrupt generation, this crooked, unscrupulous generation. This isn't just a message for yesterday. This is a message still today. It's not invented religion. This is God revealed. Christianity is not a fad. It's here to stay. If it were a fad, it had worn out a long time ago. Do you remember um, some people said to, about the, the initial takeoff of the church, if you'll just let it alone, if it's not of God, it will fade. And if it's of God, then you can't stand the way or you'll be fighting against him. Hey, we're 2,000 years later. And Christianity is going strong in the world. Uh, you might say our nation's not doing so well. That's true. We've turned away from Christ. But there are places in the world where it's still taken off. And there are Christians, over a billion Christians in the world today, of every tongue and tribe and nation, every language, every race, every nationality, people who are trusting the Lord. Today, if you're a member of the body of Christ, you're a member of the biggest organization, if you can call it that, in the world. Isn't that awesome to think about? And it's still making headway. It's not a fad. It's here to stay. I heard yesterday the story of an English writer who was searching through religion and through nature. I think he was uh, um, trying to think of the right word for this, but he was uh, he was one of those guys who was kind of uh, oriented towards preserving, like, extreme on the green end of things. Does that make sense? What's the word I'm looking for? Naturalist, environmentalist, extreme. Like, I think there's a responsible environmentalism, and then there's extreme. Okay, so it was like a religion for him. And he went from that to um, becoming a Wiccan and a Buddhist and he made a really interesting f- comment that that Wiccanism is a fairly new religion. I didn't know this. I mean, it tries to revive old things. But it's a parasite to Christianity because it borrows all the Christian ideals and turns them on his head. It's a parasite. I never thought of that. He was talking about this, and he became a Buddhist, and he felt like there was something really radically missing in that. I don't know if you know this, but Buddhism doesn't really have to have a god at all. It's a philosophy of life. And so he found that he was searching for something else, and he finally, he finally came to Christ. And when he did, he announced it, and there's many people who used to read his books that said they're no longer going to read his books anymore because he's become a fundamentalist. I don't, I don't think he's a fundamentalist. Uh, I don't know that his particular stream of Christianity would match ours, but uh, he's trusting in Christ. And uh, he experienced something like C.S. Lewis where he felt... God closing in on him, and he reluctantly surrendered. 
And this wasn't a man who grew up in a Christian home like, you know, he was inevitably going to end up there because his parents were this way. No, his dad was like a an indifferent atheist. He just thought he wasn't antagonistic against Christianity. He was just thought it was irrelevant. And uh, they used to go on nature hikes, and he said, I always kind of felt close to something, but I didn't know what it was. Finally, he reluctantly surrendered. And... Uh, now he finds it gives meaning to him and to everything else. Like, have you met people that it's surprising? For me, I know it almost seems like I was destined to come to Christ. But um, there are some people that it's surprising. You know what I mean? There's people that I know that, you know, in studying biology in college, they they started to ask big questions, you know, bigger questions than evolutionary theory could answer. They came to know Jesus. You know, the Francis Collins, the one of the discoverers, the human ge- or the participants in the Human Genome Project, is a believer in Jesus Christ. And so we don't have to check our brains at the door when we become Christians. I think there's beauty in science that points to the ordered Creator. My story is different from his. I think I might have lived my whole life giving lip service to God, a God that I wouldn't serve. If I hadn't, if it hadn't been for that haunting knowledge that one day I would stand before him. I can't tell you what life would have been like without him. But I, I do know it would have been sad and lonely and purposeless. And I would have lived with guilt and this gnawing ache in my heart that I was missing something. And I know that's true because even though I grew up in a home where my parents took me to church, as a little boy, sometimes I would wake up in the morning with this gnawing ache of emptiness in my heart. There's no reason a little boy should feel that way, I thought. And I realized later on what it was because when I really surrendered to Christ, my heart was filled and joy came in and that ache went away. That ache went away. I never would have guessed God's purpose for me because the most important things I do run against my nature. And it's in these things that I now feel most fulfilled. So with Jesus, I got a future, a family, and fulfillment. So the call to come to Jesus is a call to come and abandon all to follow him. This is what Peter's suggesting here is that we've got to repent and give ourselves fully to him. It probably won't mean selling all that you have or walking away from it all, but it will require you to come alone and to give yourself to him completely. It's going to require you to turn from sin, both the behavior and the attitude. And when you do, you can bet on the promise. He will forgive you of your sins, and he will help you to live right by giving you the Holy Spirit. But you have to trust him enough to take that step. You have to trust him enough. Maybe right now as I'm speaking, God's tugging at your heart. You just you feel something's tugging at your heart, and I think the Holy Spirit may be speaking to you. This is the time to take a step of faith. Aren't you tired of fighting against God? Man, I was. Can you hear him calling to you? I, I would just encourage you to stop fighting and surrender. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention this morning. What a great day.
I want to I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. If you are trusting in Christ, I would encourage you today to make sure that you've got your account settled with Him. That if there's any sin that you need to confess to Him, anything new that's come up in your life, that you confess that to Him. Say, Jesus, be merciful to me again. Thank you for your grace. Call it out. Name it to him and say, I've sinned in this way. Would you forgive me of it? And he will. If we confess our sins, the Bible says he's faithful and just, which means he shows up faithfully to do the same thing again. He's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can be cleansed again. It's the washing after the washing, and we need it. If you've not yet trusted in Christ, could I encourage you to call on the name of the Lord? Would you say something like this? Jesus, be merciful to me. I've sinned against you, but I don't want to be your enemy anymore. I want to be forgiven. I want to live for you, and I want to live with you. If you put your confidence in him today, you could be saved. He'll hear you. He'll forgive you. All right, I'd just like to invite you, let's just keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you've never made a commitment to Christ today, but you want to, would you lift a hand? I want to pray for you. Anyone? Okay. Father, I thank you, Lord. I know that you're working on hearts today, that you desire to bring um, believers into relationship with you. You desire to forgive sins and to not let sin stand in the way of relationship. I pray every heart that's been stirred this morning, God, you would show them how trustworthy you are. And I pray we'd put our confidence completely in you and recognize that you've taken our guilt away, that you love us, that you have a purpose for us, and our purpose goes beyond what this life has for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.